Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. October 23. On this date in history in the year 1993, Toronto Blue Jay Joe Carter wins World Series with a ninth-inning home run. Toronto Blue Jay Joe Carter wins the World Series for his team by whacking a ninth-inning home run over the Sky Dome's left field wall. It was the first time the World Series had ended with a home run since Pittsburgh's Bill Mazeroski homered to break a 9-9 tie with the Yankees in the seventh game of the 1960 series. And it was the first time in baseball history that a team won the championship with a come-from-behind home run. The Blue Jays were leading the series three games to two, but thanks to a five-run seventh inning, punctuated by a three-run blast from outfielder Lenny Dykstra, the Philadelphia Phillies were ahead six to five in the ninth. It looked like the Phils would tie the series and force a seventh game, but then they brought reliever Mitch Wild Thing Williams out of the bullpen though Williams had saved an impressive 45 games that season. He'd earned his nickname by throwing wild pitches when his team was in a tight spot, and he'd already blown a 14-9 lead for the Phillies in Game 4. Williams did just what the Blue Jays were hoping he'd do. First, he walked leadoff batter Ricky Henderson in four straight pitches. Then, after Devin White finally popped out to left field after nine pitches, Williams gave up a single to series MVP Paul Molitor. With Henderson on second and Molitor on first, Joe Carter stepped up to the plate. Carter took two balls, then two strikes. Then he cracked a low slider hard toward the left field pole. 99 times out of 100, he said later, I hook that pitch way foul. But this time, he didn't. The ball swerved right and disappeared over the wall. It was the ultimate sports fantasy, Carter said. His memorable homer won the game and the series, the highest scoring in history, 81 runs in all, and the Blue Jays' second championship in a row. And it put Carter alongside celebrated hitters like Bobby Thompson, whose immortal shot heard round the world, won the 1951 National League pennant for the New York Giants. October 24. On this date in history, in the year 1901, the first barrel ride down Niagara Falls, a 63-year-old schoolteacher named Annie Edson Taylor becomes the first person to successfully take the plunge over Niagara Falls in a barrel. After her husband died in the Civil War, the New York-born Taylor moved all over the U.S. before settling in Bay City, Michigan around 1898. In July 1901, while reading an article about the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, she learned of the growing popularity of two enormous waterfalls located on the border of upstate New York and Canada. 
Strapped for cash and seeking fame, Taylor came up with a perfect attention-getting stunt. She would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Taylor was not the first person to attempt the plunge over the famous falls. In October 1829, Sam Patch, known as the Yankee Leaper, survived jumping down the 175-foot Horseshoe Falls on the Niagara River on the Canadian side of the border. More than 70 years later, Taylor chose to take the ride on her birthday, October 24. She claimed she was in her 40s, but genealogical records later showed she was 63. With the help of two assistants, Taylor strapped herself into a leather harness inside an old wooden pickle barrel, five feet high and three feet in diameter. With cushions lining the barrel to break her fall, Taylor was towed by a small boat into the middle of the fast-flowing Niagara River and cut loose, knocked violently from side to side by the rapids, and then propelled over the edge of the Horseshoe Falls. Taylor reached the shore alive, if a bit battered, around 20 minutes after her journey began. After a brief flurry of photo ops and speaking engagements, Taylor's fame cooled, and she was unable to make the fortune for which she had hoped. She did, however, inspire a number of copycat daredevils. Between 1901 and 1995, 15 people went over the falls. Ten of them survived. Among those who died were Jesse Sharp, who took the plunge in a kayak in 1990, and Robert Overcracker, who used a jet ski in 1995. No matter the method, going over Niagara Falls is illegal, and survivors face charges and stiff fines on either side of the border. October 25, on this date in history, in the year 1853, Native Americans attack. Paiute Native Americans attack U.S. Army Captain John Gunnison and his party of 37 soldiers and railroad surveyors near Sevier Lake, Utah. Gunnison and seven other men were killed, but the survey party continued with its work and eventually reported its findings to the United States Congress. Gunnison was a West Point graduate who had led several previous topographical surveys before being assigned to conduct the survey of potential railroad routes across central Colorado and Utah. Gunnison's mission was only one of four surveys dispatched by the U.S. Congress in an attempt to break a sectional deadlock over which route the proposed transcontinental railroad should follow. The whole idea of a transcontinental railroad was jeopardized by a bitter dispute between northern and southern politicians, with both factions stubbornly insisting that the line should have its terminus in their respective regions. Congress hoped that by turning the question over to the impartial and scientific surveyors of the topographical core, a clearly superior route would emerge and break the deadlock. Following Gunnison's death at the hands of the Paiute, his lieutenant E.G. Beckwith assumed command. Beckwith eventually found a potential railroad route through Weber Canyon in the Uncha Mountains and discovered two feasible passes over the northern Sierra Nevada. The survey also provided valuable information on the geology, flora, and fauna of the West and set a high standard for subsequent explorers to follow. However, the results of neither the Gunnison-Beckwith survey nor any of the others succeeded in breaking the deadlock in Congress, since no clearly superior route emerged from the volumes of maps and data gathered, the decision remained a political rather than scientific one. 
The issue would only be settled after the southern states seceded from the Union, leaving the matter in the hands of northern politicians. October 26. On this date in history, in the year 1881, shootout at the O.K. Corral. The Earp brothers face off against the clanton McClary gang in a legendary shootout at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona. After silver was discovered nearby in 1877, Tombstone quickly grew into one of the richest mining towns in the Southwest. Wyatt Earp, a former Kansas police officer working as a bank security guard, and his brothers Morgan and Virgil, the town marshal, represented law and order in Tombstone, although they also had reputations as being power-hungry and ruthless. The Clantons and McClary's were cowboys who lived on a ranch outside of town and sidelined as cattle rustlers, thieves, and murderers. In October 1881, the struggle between these two groups for control of Tombstone and Cochise County ended in a blaze of gunfire at the O.K. Corral. On the morning of October 25, Ike Clanton and Tom McClary came into Tombstone for supplies. Over the next 24 hours, the two men had several violent run-ins with the Earps and their friend, Doc Holliday. Around 1.30 p.m. on October 26, Ike's brother, Billy, rode into town to join them, along with Frank McClary and Billy Claiborne. The first person they met in the local saloon was Holliday, who was delighted to inform them that their brothers had been pistol-whipped by the Earps. Frank and Billy immediately left the saloon, vowing revenge. Around 3 p.m., the Earps and Holiday spotted the five members of the Clanton-McClary gang in a vacant lot behind the O.K. Corral at the end of Fremont Street. The famous gunfight that ensued lasted all of 30 seconds, and around 30 shots were fired. Though it's still debated who fired the first shot, most reporters say that the shootout began when Virgil Earp pulled out his revolver and shot Billy Clanton point-blank in the chest, while Doc Holliday fired a shotgun blast at Tom McLarry's chest. Though Wyatt Earp wounded Frank McLarry with a shot in the stomach, Frank managed to get off a few shots before collapsing, as did Billy Clanton. When the dust cleared, Billy Clanton and the McLarry brothers were dead, and Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were wounded. Ike Clanton and Claiborne had run for the hills. Sheriff John Behan of Cochise County, who witnessed the shootout, charged the Earps and Holliday with murder. A month later, however, a tombstone judge found the men not guilty, ruling that they were fully justified in committing these homicides. The famous shootout has been immortalized in many movies, including... Frontier Marshal in 1839, Gunfight at the O.K. Corral in 1957, Tombstone in 1993, and Wyatt Earp in 1994. October 27. On this date in history, in the year 1904, the New York City subway opens. At 2.35 p.m. on the afternoon of October 27, New York City Mayor George McClellan takes the controls of the inaugural run of the city's innovative new rapid transit system, the subway. While London boasts the world's oldest underground train network in 1863, and Boston built the first subway in the United States in 1897, the New York City subway soon became the largest American system. The first line, 
operated by the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, the IRT, traveled 9.1 miles through 28 stations, running from City Hall in Lower Manhattan to Grand Central Terminal in Midtown and then heading west along 42nd Street to Times Square, the line finished by zipping north all the way to 145th Street and Broadway in Harlem. On opening day, Mayor McLennan so enjoyed his stint as engineer that he stayed at the controls all the way from City Hall to 103rd Street. At 7 p.m. that evening, the subway opened to the general public and more than 100,000 people paid a nickel each to take their first ride under Manhattan. The IRT service expanded to the Bronx in 1905, to Brooklyn in 1908, and to Queens in 1915. Since 1968, the subway has been controlled by the Metropolitan Transport Authority, the MTA. The system now has 26 lines and 472 stations in operation. The longest line, the 8th Avenue A Express train, stretches more than 32 miles from the northern tip of Manhattan to the far southeast corner of Queens. Every day, some 4.5 million passengers take the subway in New York, with the exception of the PATH train connecting New York with New Jersey and some parts of Chicago's elevated train system, the New York subway is the only rapid transit system in the world that runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. October 28th. On this date in history, in the year 1919, Congress enforces prohibition. Congress passes the Volstead Act over President Woodrow Wilson's veto. The Volstead Act provided for the enforcement of the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, also known as the Prohibition Amendment. The movement for the prohibition of alcohol began in the early 19th century when Americans concerned about adverse effects of drinking began forming temperance societies. By the late 19th century, these groups had become a powerful political force, campaigning on the state level and calling for national liquor abstinence. In December 1917, the 18th Amendment, prohibiting the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors for beverage purposes, was passed by Congress and sent to the states for ratification. In January 1919, the 18th Amendment achieved the necessary two-thirds majority of state ratification and prohibition became the law of the land. The Volstead Act, passed nine months later, provided for the enforcement of prohibition including the creation of a special unit of the Treasury Department. Despite a vigorous effort by law enforcement agencies, the Volstead Act failed to prevent the large-scale distribution of alcoholic beverages and organized crime flourished in America. In 1933, the 21st Amendment to the Constitution was passed and ratified, repealing Prohibition. October 29. On this date in history, in the year 1998, John Glenn returns to space. Nearly four decades after he became the first American to orbit the Earth, Senator John Herschel Glenn Jr. is launched into space again as a payload specialist aboard the space shuttle Discovery. At 77 years of age, Glenn was the oldest human ever to travel in space. During the nine-day mission, he served as part of a NASA study on health problems associated with aging. Glenn, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Marine Corps, was among the seven men chosen by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, in 1959 to become America's first astronauts. A decorated pilot, 
He had flown nearly 150 combat missions during World War II and the Korean War. In 1957, he made the first nonstop supersonic flight across the United States, flying from Los Angeles to New York in three hours and 23 minutes. In April 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space, and his spacecraft, the Vostok 1, made a full orbit before returning to Earth. Less than one month later, American Alan B. Shepard Jr. became the first American in space when his Freedom 7 spacecraft was launched on a suborbital flight. American Gus Grissom made another suborbital flight in July, and in August, Soviet cosmonaut German Titov spent more than 25 hours in space aboard Vostok 2, making 17 orbits. As a technological power, the United States was looking very much second-rate compared to its Cold War adversary. If the Americans wanted to dispel this notion, they needed a multi-orbital flight before another Soviet space advance arrived. On February 20, 1962, NASA and Colonel John Glenn accomplished this feat with the flight of Friendship 7, a spacecraft that made three orbits of the Earth in five hours. Glenn was hailed as the national hero, and on February 23rd, President John F. Kennedy visited him at Cape Canaveral. Glenn later addressed Congress and was given a ticker tape parade in New York City. Out of a reluctance to risk the life of an astronaut as popular as Glenn, NASA essentially grounded the clean machine in the years after his historic flight. Frustrated with this uncharacteristic lack of activity, Glenn turned to politics and, in 1964, announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate from his home state of Ohio and formally left NASA. Later that year, however, he withdrew his Senate bid after seriously injuring his inner ear in a fall from a horse. In 1970, following a stint as a Royal Crown Cola executive, he ran for the Senate again but lost the Democratic nomination to Howard Metzenbaum. Four years later, he defeated Metzenbaum, won the general election, and went on to win re-election three times. In 1984, he unsuccessfully sought the Democratic nomination for president. In 1998, Glenn attracted considerable media attention when he returned to space aboard the space shuttle Discovery. In 1999, he retired from the U.S. Senate seat after four consecutive terms in office, a record for the state of Ohio. Glenn died on December 8, 2016, at age 95. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for October 23 through October 29. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.